0: today we're talking about the impending extinction of medical dermatology. Was Jerry Seinfeld right when he called us pimple poppers? You're listening to Reach mdxm 157 the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and with me today in the studio is Dr. Neil Bhatia, who's a dermatologist in practice in Milwaukee and an associate professor of derm at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome, Neil. Thanks, Mike. You know, People think that in other fields, medical dermatology doesn't affect them, internists and general practitioners, but it does because we're losing medical dermatologists. So the first question is, am I a dinosaur because I practice medical dermatology?
1: Well, that's an interesting way of putting it because a lot of what we consider to be scope of practice of what we learned in residency is not often what we see in our primary care colleagues of what they're doing in the field. And some of that goes back to what they think is an access problem or a distribution problem of dermatologists or an inability to get patients into a dermatology office or what they think they can do on their own, even though they may not often see the consequence of their treatments. So, one of the problems that I've been seeing is that if, if my primary care colleagues, for example, would call me straight, I can get their patients in within the hour. But they're otherwise under a perception that patients will have to wait three months to get seen for their rash or their skin cancer. All of a sudden, those problems have already taken care of
0: themselves. Right. I see that perception, too. I mean, in my office, we get anybody in the same day that has to get in that day, especially if we get a call from a colleague, and yet they they moan about the fact that it takes so long to get to see us. So what's happening?
1: We're living in a time of of poor exposure for dermatology, for one. A lot of patients don't understand what dermatologists do. They don't understand that we treat all diseases of the skin, the hair, the nails, the oral mucosa, anything that has to do with the top layers of, of somebody. The difference is now there's a perception that we're only doing cosmetic surgery or we're only doing things that anybody else can't figure out or patients can't get in, and they should go see their regular doctor for their abnormal moles or their rashes or things that otherwise a specialist can do. And I have this argument with my patients all the time. I say, well, if you're having clutching chest pain, where would you go? To your regular doctor or to a cardiologist? Same thing goes with they're having GI problems. Would you go... Straight to the regular doctor, or would you consider seeing a specialist? So there really is a lack of perception that dermatologists are available to the public. And I, we had a little interesting conversation with a waitress. We were out talking about dermatology. She said, I couldn't help but overhear about you guys are dermatologists. What, what do you do? And we said, well, we treat all your problems with the skin. That's what we're here for. And she said, well, I just went to my, my primary care doctor for my moles. And he said, well, if this one changes, go get, go get it checked. But she didn't know where to get it checked by.
0: So I thought that was a very interesting perception. So maybe we need to change the perception with our colleagues first about what we do. And actually, to to respond to you, if I was having clutching chest pains, I would be on a plane to Paris for my last good meal, (laughs) you know, because I figured that would be it. All right. So let's talk about your practice first, all right? Tell me what what your practice is like, your private practice.
1: I'm the primary dermatologist for the entire group of about 100 physicians where they can refer to me from multiple different sites, and I pretty much have them – on speed dialer, or vice versa if they need something or someone to get seen. But my practice is mainly 80% medical dermatology. I deal with some surgical issues for skin cancer within my limits, and I do some cosmetic procedures that basically are within the facial boundaries and whatever somebody wants on an outpatient walk-in, walk-out basis. Okay, like what? The most common things include, as we've probably heard in the general public or the media about Botox injections for reducing wrinkles or lines of facial expression, we do things like filling substances, which enhance or replace loss of volume in the skin and kind of rejuvenate and make patients look, look a little bit younger. And then we do some chemical peels and microdermabrasion, which are meant to alter the texture of the skin, such as for acne scars or photo damage, things like that. So they're really very simple procedures technically. This is where we see a fallacy that anybody who's trained in medicine, whether they're a physician or a physician extender or even an esthetician, can actually perform these on their own because there's a perception that they're simple. The problem comes in with the evaluation of which patient needs which procedure, which patient is potentially a difficult cosmetic patient, and which patient needs the after hand-holding that is often necessary for the success of a cosmetic procedure, if you will.
0: Okay, so st- stupid question because we already know the answer. But all these other people who are out there not trained to care for the skin who are doing these, the motivation is?
1: This is money. And everyone can say, oh, so-and-so is making money on this. Why can't I? You know, I I can work with my hands. I can do something. I can market myself and make myself as a, as a cosmetic surgeon. And what's happening now, too, is a lot of doctors are attending weekend workshops that basically make them come out and say, I can all of a sudden be proficient at some of these procedures that I once was referring out. So there is a pitfall to the average consumer where basically the buyer beware motto has to come in. Patients have to be aware of what someone's level of training is, what's their degree, what's their expertise, and what potentially are the pitfalls of going to see that that practitioner, if you will, even if they aren't a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon.
0: Right, We did a show on this with uh, a while ago with Mitch Goldman, who runs a medical spa. And I know you don't run a medical spa, but he was giving the same message, that really you need to have somebody who's trained in the care of the skin doing the procedure or in the facility doing it.
1: Absolutely. Now, what, what this relates to medical dermatology is the access problems that we're seeing. If a patient calls up and says, well, I have abnormal moles or I have skin cancer or that I want checked or I have a rash, the average wait time for a lot of dermatology offices is two to three months. Whereas if a patient calls and says, well, I want Botox done, they can get in as fast as the next day in some offices. And that's really been one of the bigger problems that we're seeing as far as access goes. And there's a couple of different ways about it. And I'm sure in your practice you've seen where you make time for special emergencies or if a physician calls that you get that patient in a lot faster. The problem that is out there, again, back to the issue of perception, is that not a lot of our colleagues realize
0: that they can do that. If you just tuned in, I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and we're talking today with Dr. Neil Bhatia about medical dermatology and whether and how it will survive in the future and actually even shifting into what's appropriate in treating your, your patient's skin. Do you go to a GP or do you go to a dermatologist? Okay, so let's get back to this access problem. I've interviewed a number of dermatologists on this show, and everybody seems to swear that they have good access to their office. So are people lying, or is it are we the exceptions to the rule? I wouldn't want a stereotype
1: that says, well, some physicians of any specialty don't work every day, for example, or some physicians are not seeing as many patients as they should. That's not a fair assessment for making access. What I do think, though, is where you see it, perhaps someone who's a little bit more cosmetically emphasized in their practice or someone who doesn't do a lot of surgery, they may want to turf some of those patients off to a subspecialist who does, for example, and that may create a minimum access problem for, for those particular needs. I think the greater access problem comes in where patients are being seen perhaps too frequent of a basis of return, which clogs up some schedules. I also see where a lot of physicians aren't willing to see patients of certain insurance types, which can create an access problem. And there's also, of course, the issue of what patients maybe have problems that merit getting seen sooner compared to others that can wait.
0: Right. Well, what I've suggested time and time again in, in these shows is that if a doctor is that busy, that they're swamped and they're booked three months out, that you then have the option of putting in five spaces every day that you don't fill till that day. And if you're that busy, you're going to fill them. Absolutely. And that way people could be seen the same day. We do that in my office. I don't know if you do.
1: Mm -hmm. I make a special time at maybe the bottom of every hour for someone to be added on or double booked in case of an emergency. And that comes with walk-ins, that comes with referral from the emergency room, or from another colleague. But again, someone who has a rash who needs to get seen that has been seeing somebody else or hasn't been seen at all, that poses a significant access problem if they can't get an appointment because this is again where you're dealing with 20 other people who have similar rashes and that ties up your day.
0: Exactly, but what we're telling primary care doctors now is, don't just tell the patient to go have their skin checked and don't tell them to just call a dermatologist if they really need to be seen. Get on the phone and call us. And more than likely, will take the patient that day.
1: Absolutely, because I would rather help as fast as I can, rather than that patient receiving treatment that's not helpful or potentially going to make them worse.
0: Right, but there's a couple of caveats. Don't wait till four thirty on a Friday afternoon for a patient you've had been treating for a month. Bingo. Yeah, exactly. And expect us to be jumping if, if we're walking out of the office either. We're human, also. Mm-hmm. Just you know, do this with a little bit of respect, because I've gotten those calls.
1: But the bigger thing I think, like we hit on before, is how do we undo the perception that we'll see cosmetic surgery patients and cash patients earlier than we'll see patients who actually need medical help.
0: Let's talk about that article that was in the New York Times. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. Okay, That's so right. the headline says?
1: The headline says, wait Shorter for Botox Than for Suspicious Moles. And it was basically a, a random study done calling about 900 different dermatologists across the country and looking at how many offered at least half the time cosmetic surgery versus seeing medical patients. And a lot of them found that over a year's time, they they called different offices looking for wait times the probably average wait time for a new patient for a medical problem was 38 days, and the median wait time was about 26 days, what they called it. But if the patient called and said, I want to have Botox done, they were seen probably no later than six days.
0: If they called my office for Botox, they'd wait forever because I don't, yeah. don't do Botox. Well,
1: that's just it. So that's what—that's the difference between a doctor and, and somebody else. I won't even mention what those titles might be.
0: Well, the only thing is, on this study, I've been talking to other dermatologists, and I actually I called up a few offices myself and very interesting, cosmetically-oriented practices. I was surprised to find out that this wasn't true. I called up anonymously. No one knew who I was. And I could get into their office faster for a mole check when I said I had a suspicious mole. Mm-hmm. I think part of the problem is that the public doesn't identify what they need when they call an office.
1: Absolutely. Because that goes back to, again, what does the dermatologist do? And who's the onus on to to make that perception? Is it on us as individual practitioners? Is it up to our academy of dermatology that basically sponsors us in in advertising? Or are we relying on industry, for example, with uh, pharmaceutical commercials that say, go see your dermatologist if you need a certain condition checked or if you're having a certain need? So a lot of these come from different sources. But again, the real issue comes to changing perception what's out there.
0: Well, let's change it a little bit. Let's keep going a little further because we have an audience full of other specialists and GPs. There's not an audience full of dermatologists. Once again, Let's emphasize that too. Our primary care doctors who are sending patients to us, if they need to be seen faster, and they're not going to make a call because it's not an emergency, have the patient inform our offices what the problem is, and maybe we can sift through and see them faster.
1: Right. I did some internal medicine before I did dermatology, just like a lot of a lot of dermatologists, and we all know what little dermatology we get in medical school and in internal medicine residency, and a lot of it is learned either on the job or in workshops, or at seminars, or working with colleagues. And unfortunately, if you're being taught the wrong ideas and they perpetuate, they may not benefit the patients in the long run. So it definitely does help to have a comfort level within your scope that you can do basic dermatology with, just like every other general practitioner should have some basic knowledge of every specialty. But there should be a point where that concept of, okay, I've done everything I can for this patient. How do I get them seen by a specialist? And what do I have to do? That's really on us, the dermatologists, to make that access easy.
0: Well, how about a plea also to some of our colleagues? If you don't know what the diagnosis is, don't prescribe something for it. Absolutely. I'm sure you see that, I see that too. Or the patient says, Dr. Jones said he didn't know what it was, but try this.
1: Well, sure. And the the first thing I tell those patients is let's not question the treatment before we question the diagnosis. That's the number one thing to, to consider. Because the red scaly rash to one is, is a different red scaly rash to a dermatologist.
0: So what else do we need to change in our perception for the public here, and how do we do it?
1: The second step is basically policing ourselves and making sure dermatologists are working at the highest level possible to best serve their patients and not turning our backs on new treatments or new concepts of treatment and making sure that we're in tune to the new science that's out there.
0: All right, thank you. I want to thank Dr. Neil Bhatti, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing medical dermatology and where it's in danger of disappearing and how primary care doctors can get better access for their patients to us. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD 157 the channel for medical professionals. This station was created for you, so we need your feedback, comments, and questions. Send your email to xm at reachmd.com, and we thank you for joining us.